Shrink Wrap Radio number 807, Dr. Salim Ali on how natural laws define human life. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Salim H. Ali, Ph.D., a noted consultant and author on the interplay between the science and politics of the environment. Current debates in politics often present what should constitute a world order, while scientists have wrestled with what are the fundamental conditions of a natural order. Author Salim H. Ali provides a readable synthesis of these debates with practical guidance for the public by consumers, the government, and industry. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Salim H. Ali, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure. Well, it is a pleasure for me as well. And we're going to be discussing your book, Earthly Order, How Natural Laws Define Human Life. And uh, I, have, I must say, it's quite a book. It's quite a book. We'll comment on that more. But before we get into it... Um, I'd like to dig into your background a bit. Uh, where did you grow up? Uh, what sort of family? Give us, give us a sense of that. Yes, yeah, so I've had a very eclectic upbringing. I had the good fortune of growing up in um, two different countries. Uh, I grew up completely bilingual. So I was born um, in New Bedford, Massachusetts in the US, surprisingly, even though my accent certainly doesn't seem like a Boston <laughs> accent. <No>. Uh, <laughs> but so the story is that when I was nine years old, my mother took me back to Pakistan, which is the uh, country of parental lineage for me. And she wanted me to have full cultural immersion. So I grew up in Pakistan from the age of nine to 16. And my father was still in the US. He was a professor at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth campus, uh, which is the Southern campus of the UMass system. And uh, we would visit every summer, uh, the US, and uh, sometimes he would be on sabbaticals in Pakistan. So I grew up in both countries. I felt very comfortable in both countries, which is you know, rare for people in the diaspora. Usually they, they feel more attenuated towards one culture or the other. And I yeah. really felt very comfortable in both. Uh, 
And then I came to the US for all my higher studies, uh, my bachelor's, master's, PhD. Then I also lived in Australia for five years as part of my academic career. Uh, I was directing a research center in, in Australia. And so I have three passports, US, Pakistani, and Australian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I'm married to a psychologist. And so I certainly value the power of um, psychology in both its uh, research and clinical capacities. Well, wow. So your father was a professor, right? And your mother, was she a professor or what's... So she was a, an educator. She was more in administration and she was a principal of a, a college in Pakistan. She worked for the education department in the government. And so I do come from a family of educationists um, sort of uh, grew up with, uh, you know, books around me. Uh, yeah. I was subscribed to National Geographic magazine when I was 10 years old and hence my passion for the environment at a very early age. Uh, so, yes, I feel very blessed that way with my upbringing. And one of the things that I'm really struck by, and it's maybe not too surprising given, given the history that you've just shared with us, is uh, your work ethic. Uh, clearly, <laughs> you're very accomplished. I hope that uh, our listeners and viewers will have a chance to look at, at your, uh, your, your bio statement that I have on our website. And uh, uh, so your life has been marked by um, very high achievement. This is not your first book. Um, it is a very, uh, a very academic book, I would say. And uh, with a, with a very wide scope, an amazingly wide scope, and yet goes into depth in most of the topics that you take up. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, if a person reads this book, they'll get quite an education, I must say. <laughs> uh, well, that's very kind of you. I, I would say, though, that the term academic in some circles is almost uh, a blemish, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, a stigma. I, I don't mean, and, and so, uh, yeah, so no, I, no, I, I know you don't mean it that way, but yeah. just for your audience, I wanted to note that, you know, I've, I've tried to make it accessible for a general audience, but I don't want to dumb it down. So it, it was a very tough book to convince publishers to take on because I, I wanted it in the trade lists. I wanted it with the university press, ideally, because I wanted it peer reviewed but I also wanted it to be affordable. So it was, um, you know, quite a task to find the right publisher. And I'm very grateful to Oxford University Press for seeing the promise in this book in that light, that they were able to price it in an affordable way, but also uh, recognize the importance of the depth and breadth uh, balance between. And I've, I've also committed to donating all of the royalties for environmental literacy programs. This is really a labor of love. I, I feel mm -hmm. this book uh, was needed because 20 years of teaching, I have felt that uh, the public is often not well served in connecting natural science to social and political science around the environment. Yes, yeah. So it's definitely a very timely book. And you grapple with big ideas in this book, really big ideas. And um, so one of the big ideas, I think, that goes throughout the book, you have a deep interest in chaos versus mm -hmm. order. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if 
if these should be called laws, maybe they should be called principles, mm -hmm. the principles of, of chaos versus order. What, how do you see the relationship between these two principles? Yes, so I think, you know, part of the motivation for writing this book was a recognition that humans yearn for order. You know, there's this sense of, um, of trying to define a new world order. You hear that in the common news um, conversations. Henry Kissinger wrote a whole 700-page book on <laughs> world order. But oftentimes those discussions of world order, they are in contradiction with how human behavior resents being ordered to do something, you know? So we yeah. always, so at one level, we want to have individualism, which if left to its own devices might not result in social order. Uh, but on the other hand, we also yearn for some kind of order so that we can find ways of um, defining our lives to make things more efficient and so on. So this book was trying to figure out how in natural systems order has emerged and, and what are the ways in which we can learn from that in our social and political lives. And especially I wanted to focus on the environment as an organizing theme, because that's my own field of research and, and teaching is environmental studies. And the environment uh, in general should be a very cooperative area for uh, human behavior, because we are ultimately dependent on the planet and we should all find ways to cooperate around it. But that doesn't always come through. So that, that was the motivation for me in kind of using order as an organizing uh, narrative for the book. Yeah, and you you give lots of examples of uh, where we see order, and certainly one place I think is in our brains. So you talk about we we uh, long for order, and in fact our our you know our brains we come with set up to be responsive to order. We're looking for we're pattern seekers. Yes. And uh, that's how we learn language and, uh, and uh, how we learn to see, you know, one of the things we've learned from, uh, from psychological science is that, for example, people who were blind, uh, bo born blind, and then somehow were given sight, what they see is chaos initially. Mm -hmm. They can't make any sense of it. And so but the brain is wired to make sense of things. And so eventually, eventually out of that, that seeming chaos, they begin to get a definition of, of the visual fields. Um, so. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's another aspect of this book, which is a sort of a cautionary tale for society that I want to put forward is that patterns much as they are very alluring and we gravitate towards them for evolutionary reasons, they can also be very deceptive. And that's why we have the whole concern around illusions and so on. But patterns can lead to prejudice. I mean, that's how we, we often get um, stereotypes that are formed around particular communities and so on. So we start to see patterns where they may not be necessarily defining. And so that's another um, goal of this book is to help the public understand what kind of patterns are meaningful, what kind of patterns are 
deceptive, uh, both in nature and in social systems. And then also to see that, you know, we can, we, we as humans have the ability to invent order too. It's not just discovering order. So figuring out that, that um, tension between discovering order and inventing order for natural systems. So for example, industry, now we often environmentalists often lament the fact that you know we have uh, we have denatured the world in terms of building industrial infrastructure, yeah. but we have invented a new kind of order, the industrial order. But that's not necessarily bad. I mean that has brought very important opportunities for humanity. And so I try to also wrestle with those aspects so that we can have a more constructive conversation about the future. Because part of my concern is that. We are at a time now where there is such a level of uh, despondency, depression around uh, the future of the earth. There's there's a sense of despair and dystopia, and 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 I'm trying to find a pragmatic way for people to navigate that. Yeah, wrestle was a, is certainly a good word. Uh, uh, because uh, they're very challenging ideas that you're wrestling with and trying to to find peace with uh, the human tendency is to want to be able to go to one side or the other to say it's about order or it's about chaos <laughs> and people <laughs> exactly. would have arguments I'm sure philosophers have over time and uh, and yet you're looking for uh, a middle path if you will Yes, and, and and trying to avoid those sorts of extremes, and I was intrigued that in your as you look into this in your book, sometimes if you go deeply into order, you find chaos underneath it. You mm-hmm. you write about, um, and I wanted you to say something about this. Just grabbing some a piece out of the book is you talk about the, the granularity when we zoom in. And so you, mm-hmm. you talk about um, uh, physics and um, uh, Einsteinian uh, concepts, right? Mm-hmm. Talk to us a bit about that phenomenon of of the shift from when we go granular in our yes, yeah, and you know, I I start the book with a metaphor from my childhood. Um, one of my favorite toys was a kaleidoscope. Yeah. Now, a kaleidoscope is very much in that vein, an example of that granularity where you look at the kaleidoscope images and they're very ordered because we have created a structure through which we are viewing the individual fragments of glass that are inside the kaleidoscope. But those individual fragments of glass are often very uh, random and they're not uh, particularly shaped to give us that perspective that we see because of the mirrors right yeah so right. often in Pakistan they would make kaleidoscope just from you know broken glass bangles because in in South Asian culture women especially yeah. wear these glass bangles and they just chop them up and they put them in this hexagon tube with the um, the glass uh, the, the mirrors and you would get these beautiful images coming through so you know that's how the granularity depending on the structure you can get these kinds of dimensions and in complex systems theory and you know complex systems is the 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 emerging science of trying to understand um, the way in which chaotic uh, 
processes can lead to uh, structures in nature. And uh, that, uh, that in itself uh, uses this notion of coarse graining. That's how complex systems uh, scientists use this term. So, um, and for me, what's important is functionality, right? So as a planner, I'm interested in, okay, whatever level of function is useful, let's go with that. So for example, uh, if you go into the basic sciences, physics is in some ways the, the most fundamental of sciences because it's dealing with the, the properties of, of matter at that at very uh, uh, basic level of existence. And then you move to chemistry, which is what my first degree was in, where you, you start to look at uh, elements and molecules and so on. And that's another level of functionality. And then you move to biology, where you are creating living systems out of those molecules. And that's another level of functionality. And yeah. then you can move. So I, I always say like, you know, take things where they're at in terms of functionality and see what's going to work through for whatever you want to analyze. And then you can uh, make sense of things uh, better. And uh, so that's how I've approached the book also is to try and look at that granularity at the level of what makes sense for its function. Yeah, yeah. How deep do you go down that is useful for for the given thing that you're trying to do and uh, that certainly makes sense um so in your book you cover you go into economics and various economic theories and politics and um and 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 philosophy and uh it's really quite an undertaking um so you know maybe we'll sort of jump towards the the bottom line Mm-hmm. Which you know, which I'm you know, and you go into religious perspectives and so on. You know, we have all mm-hmm. of our belief systems and all of that, the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah, and that I take religion in the same sense of functionality. You know, you don't have to go into the 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 basic reality of religion in in terms of it being absolute truth to see its functionality. Right. As, and as long as we are able to keep that distinction and what Stephen Jay Gould who was a great inspiration for me, uh, you know, during my doctoral days at MIT, I had a chance to actually interview him uh, before he passed away. And he used this concept of science and religion being non-overlapping magisteria that both had different functions, but we should not try to conflate them. And if we keep that in mind and if you know, religion is considered in the context of its functionality for providing purpose, meaning for understanding areas of knowledge, which we cannot otherwise uh, try to have a reductionist perspective on. Uh, that That is, that's fine. And, uh, you know, that's like the power of stories. Anyhow, stories have a lot of power, even if they're not literally factual at every point. So um, that's how I try to approach this too. And then in psychology, you know, you have this concept of synchronicity, uh, which is a concept that evolved out of Jung's conversations with Einstein and, and Wolfgang Pauli. And I talk about that in the book also. And synchronicity is where you have these kind of coincidences that happen and you can't really pinpoint a cause from a reductionist perspective but um, but they still have meaning and they still provide 
uh, some fulfillment for the observer in in that regard. Uh, and uh, you know, we we do have some aspects of science where people have tried to understand how synchronicity can happen. Uh, and there's a physicist, Paul Halpern, who's written about this as well. Uh, you know, so. I think if we have that kind of a much more inclusive vision uh, and we are able to keep sense of the, the, the salience of science and keeping it separate from pseudoscience, the danger is when you start to conflate things and you try to make it into uh, a hodgepodge that unfortunately we have some public intellectuals and popularizers yeah. uh, of nonfiction books who have done that. And that I don't think is helpful. And then they, they actually lead to polarization because they get, you have the, the, the people who are very much in the camp of the, the, the science community then really disavow them. And there, there may be some really good nuggets of functional information in the, that material, but you end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater then. Well, this is the basic human dilemma Mm -hmm. is to, to trying to figure out what's going on and what's real. Mm -hmm. And and one of the fascinating things is that there's not a lot of agreement mm -hmm. across humanity about, you know, this gets down to epistemology um, about what's real and, yeah. and what's, and, and how to know. And, you know, so I admire you for crashing through this thicket. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, I admire psychologists like you who have really grappled with a lot of these uh, fundamental questions, like consciousness. I mean, it's another one. Where... Well, I, gr I grapple with it on this uh, in this series, in terms of who am I going to invite to mm. be on the show, and. And do I go off into what I consider to be maybe something that's not terribly scientific, mm. but that I know some portion of the audience will be interested in, but I have limits and I try mm. to have an open mind, but I do have limits. Yes. <laughs> I, would lo I loved what you, you, when you're talking about uh, Jung and synchronicity, you're definitely talking to my soul because mm. that's a system uh, that, uh, that's meant a lot to me, and I've I've seen a lot of synchronicity, runs of synchronicity in my own life, mm -hmm. and you know, and so I'm very attached to the meaning <laughs> that mm -hmm. I feel has emerged. And at the same time, I don't have a theory about you know that it's God or that some other metaphysical theory that I'm attached to. I just I'm trying to hold it all. And just say, well, this is exciting and wonderful when it happens. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we do have to approach these matters with humility. You know, there are so many aspects which we are finding now um, within the quantum realm, even, which is yeah. much as the theoretical physicist will try to uh, show a certain confidence that they understand <laughs> the reality is if you really push it down to the certain level at the the fundamental aspects, which I had to do for this book. You know, I really went down and I, I did a lot of research and studying of uh, the, the various fundamental theories of physics and why we have not been able to get a unifying theory, which brings together 
gravity within the other standard model of physics that we have, you know, there, then you get into the realm of a lot of conjecture uh, where people are kind of trying to uh, create mathematical models which are internally consistent, but then they don't necessarily have empirical uh, illumination. <laughs> and so no. it becomes really problematic at that point that why are they then showing so much confidence in that while they're so disparaging and contemptuous towards people who are trying to find meaning in other ways, even if it is not literal. So, you know, for me, that humility is really important. And I, mm -hmm. uh, I, and I, I, I don't mean that to um, in any way condone uh, pseudoscience, which is very problematic, but at the same time, I think being willing to uh, engage in in those debates uh, is is just as important, uh, and especially in those ca cases where uh, we are seeing, like for example, you know, I I use the quotation from Winston Churchill uh, about belief. You know that belief in itself is from a scientific point of view problematic. Like, you know, Carl Sagan famously said that I don't want to believe, I want to know. And from a, yeah. a purely science perspective, that makes sense. But then on the other hand, you know, belief uh, is, is, um, is a much more visceral uh, human trait. And uh, even the people who say they know and they're not really believing, at some level, it becomes a point of, of pride and it it becomes a belief for them, sure. you know, for many of them. Yeah. And so Winston Churchill famously said, you know, whether you believe or not, it is a wicked thing to take away people's hope. And, you know, for me, that has always been a guiding force for me. Like, you mm -hmm. know, whether I, I, there are many times I see where people are just talking about something which I know is empirically not likely to be the case, but if it's giving them some sense of hope and comfort, who am I to come in and take that away? So long as it is not eroding some other major social foundation, like for example, with the vaccine debates or others, you know, where it, you can have situations where that kind of belief system can actually erode larger social goals, then we, you do need to engage on those conversations more directly. Yeah, yeah, well said. So, with all that's going on right now that feels very chaotic in our social structure, social world, you know, and I, I'm thinking of the Ukraine and, and China and uh, <clears throat> the political situation seems very dangerous. And there are ways in which human affairs have always been dangerous, but particularly dangerous now because... Mm -hmm because we have tools, both psychological tools of enormous power, along with uh, weapons, and, and, and psychology has been weaponized now as mm -hmm. well. And um, so it's, it feels like we're at a very dangerous place in time. What, what, how do you find and support hope in yourself? That's the yes. bottom line question for me. <laughs> yeah, you know, for me, I, I look at, uh, first of all, I go back to the basic um, principles on which uh, our species has been able to adapt over time, you know, in our existence. And uh, I marvel at how, how humanity has 
bounce back from adversity and whether it was like the the you know the great uh, cataclysms of volcanic eruptions like the toba cataclysm which by some measure uh, made humanity almost extinct um this was about 80000 years ago and there was a major eruption uh, of a super volcano on sumatra island in indonesia and um uh, contested as the theory is it it's l- l- widely accepted that uh the impact was so severe that only uh you know about 10% of humanity that existed at the time survived and we were able to bounce back with so much less technological uh know-how at the time so some of that history gives me some degree of confidence that we we have the ability to be adaptive it's not necessarily going to be the future we want but it it will be a future for humanity and i i i find it problematic when we frame the conversation around you know the extinction of humanity uh i think the extinction of humanity is possible but it's more likely with a kind of you know an asteroid impact or something like that uh than it is with the uh, anthropogenic uh, activities it would it may well be that we ha- we may create a reality which is is very suboptimal like with climate change clearly we're going yeah. to create a a reality which is going to be much more difficult for people and uh, uh but it's also one where we can where possible adapt and i think that that kind of conversation around inventing order that's why i was talking about inventing order i think that's much more hopeful and helpful than to have this kind of uh, you know very um anger filled despair that i do find with some of my students even in the environmental community you know much as i admire for example greta thunberg the the famous swedish activist whom i had a chance to meet actually yeah. at the climate change meeting in 2019 in madrid you know um that the amount of anger and despair i sense from her it it saddens me because i feel as though you know at one level it's great she's galvanizing people to action but at another level i feel as though the adaptive aspects and the opportunities for how humanity can adapt get eroded if we go too much down that path yeah. uh so you know that's where i i feel that we especially who are in the academic community and educationists we have to make sure we provide that hope for the next generation yeah so Uh, so your hope resides in that we can work with one another and work to build structures that will help us to get through whatever is coming yes and that's both physical structures and social structures yeah uh, i think we we shouldn't underestimate social innovation too we of course there is the technological innovation which will be important uh, but humanity has shown the ability to organize in ways that uh, uh, are are quite remarkable when uh, when faced with adversity uh, whether it is uh, the, the kind of crises that happen in uh, with earthquakes in japan and so on you know you it's amazing how those societies socially organized to respond to them uh, so you know for example the after the fukushima disaster in in japan we had 52 nuclear power plants which got shut down now one one can argue whether that was a good or bad decision and i i talk about nuclear energy in the book also um but um but what happened was then they had to immediately shift power to natural gas power plants 
And that meant that there was not enough power capacity for the country. So they had to do social innovation, not just technical innovation. So what did they do? Well, they organized that all government offices, they needed to conserve power. So everyone in one building would take vacation at the same time. So that, you know, you you huh. were ordering your lives so that yeah. you could shut down the whole building. <laughs> yeah. You know, those kinds of things are remarkable. The shared economy that has developed, for example, you know, with the the the, the tools at our disposal with um, uh, ride sharing or home sharing and, and so on, you know, if you can manage them well in certain cases, they can be great social innovations, which can also reduce our energy footprint. If not managed well, they could go the other way. So like an Airbnb can reduce energy usage because you can have unutilized space utilized. But if we don't manage it well, it can lead to very high real estate prices in inner cities, which can lead to flight of poor people and the need for housing outside the city. So it's a matter of how you manage it, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, these are such wonderful idea, uh, uh, examples that you're giving. What about uh, cryptocurrency? <laughs> I'm sure you. I'm yes. sure you must have some thoughts about that. Yeah. So I mean, you know, money is a, it's a medium of exchange, and uh, it's based on trust essentially, right? So uh, originally, we didn't have trust in paper money, so we had the gold standard because we needed to have that sense of trust with gold as the metal of permanence and, and value. Uh, we got over that in, in the US in, in the early 70s, and we no longer have a gold standard. Um, but now the next phase is with cryptocurrency, you need to develop some kind of trust in the actual medium of, of exchange through computer networks. So with the advent of blockchain technology, which provides you a certain level of trust in terms of each transaction not being corrupted along its full uh, chain of transmission, you can have the same. But that trust has a certain um, energy requirement. Even though you don't have physical value of some metal directly, you need energy to be able to, um, to manage that blockchain, which gives you the cryptocurrencies. So uh, I think cryptocurrencies do have a future because people can use them in the same way if you have trust in them. But wh when we get that level of trust will depend uh, on, on how well we are able to regulate them. And, and, uh, and that keeps um, going up and down based on you know changes in the economic system and how People are shifting their priorities. But I do see cryptocurrency certainly could very well have a future in that regard. But we have to keep track of the energy footprint of, of that kind of activity because it still requires processing power to be able to manage the blockchain through the computer servers. And that can be very energy intensive. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that aspect of needing the, uh, we need electricity. Yes. Uh, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Very high, a, high amount of it. A lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think I've heard that there are facilities that are involved with this, computer facilities that are huge. Yes, absolutely. Lots and lots of computers and, and, uh, and using up as much energy maybe as at this point as a city, yes. a small city. 
or maybe a large city. I don't know. Yeah, it 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 can very well be. And uh, you know, right now it's still a relatively marginal currency in in world affairs. But if it were to be upscaled, you could run into that. Now they're thinking of ways to reduce that by a more innovative, efficient ways of managing the energy infrastructure. Um, but we still have a ways to go and we have to build trust in the, the actual product. Like we were able to build trust with paper currency uh, and we got rid of the gold standard. Let's see if we can build trust in cryptocurrency. Yeah. Well, what else would you like to, to say here? What else are you feeling particularly passionate about now in, in the time that we that we have remaining? I wonder if there are some points that you were hoping to make that you haven't had a chance to yet. Yes. Well, I, you know, one of the points that I try to make in the book is that having a systems approach to problem solving can be immensely empowering and it can really improve one's quality of well-being. Because when you, you see connections between different parts of our lives with the natural world and how we are part of this fabric of reality, I think it, it's immensely empowering in two ways. Because on the one hand, you can see the impact you can make. But on the other hand, you can also see a certain level of humility in terms of uh, the limits of what you can do. So I think that's the, the 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 other from a psychological perspective. I would hope that this sense of perspective for a reader uh, can really uh, can really give you that fulfillment of of what you can do. I mean, I use the one of the not in this book, but in some of my lectures, I use the quotation from George Eliot, uh, her uh, famous uh, novel Middlemarch. And uh, right at the end of the novel, there's this um, wonderful paragraph uh, about the, the main protagonist of the novel, Dorothea, who uh, has uh, done a lot of good in the world. You know, she's part of this larger scheme of things. And, and uh, the quotation goes something like, um, uh, you know, the, the growing good of the world is largely made up of unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill between you and me is largely owing to those Dorotheas who lead hidden lives and rest in unvisited tombs. Uh, I think that sense for people, you know, like we are part of this earthly order where we are playing a role. We may not leave a big mark in history. Uh, we are leading hidden lives, most of us, but that we are contributing to this order, both in terms of our sense of history, but also in terms of the present. I think that in itself is really uh, empowering for people then and, and knowing where your place is in that natural system. Yeah, I'm thinking of kindness in this, uh, in this uh, perspective that uh, kindness, uh, they talk about random acts of kindness as uh, if they're multiplied, if there's enough of the little people are doing those, then uh, there's always hope there. Uh, that, that's a wonderful point. Yeah, and that's how you get emergence in complex systems, right? It's like individuals 
acting in certain ways or individual, whether it's particles or people, you know, you get emergent phenomena as a result for better and for worse. You can get yes. stamp, you can get a stampede also from right. emergence, but you can also get these wonderful community systems that emerge. Yes, and, I'm, thinking, and I'm thinking of microloans going back mm, to money and yeah. the microloan system uh, seems there was a charity and I, I've in the shuffling of computer files and so on that I used to donate to, and I may not donate anymore because I've forgotten who they are, what their name is, but it was based <laughs> on, on microloans in uh, across the world and third world countries where um, with small loans, again, the trust there, to, we're going to trust you. It's not a, a fortune that we're loaning you, but, uh, and they found that particularly loaning microloans to women to be particularly important because uh, of women's commitment to family and to raising the children and so on. Yes, yeah, with microcredit organizations, you know, Muhammad Yunus, who was the pioneer of uh, the microcredit industry in Bangladesh um, yes. and started Grameen Bank, won a Nobel Peace Prize. He, in fact, wrote a cover endorsement from my earlier book, Treasures of the Earth. Uh, that was his his overarching paradigm was that you find ways of building trust uh, with those parts of society who are able to um, really capitalize on that trust. And that's women often. And, uh, and that uh, paid off really, really well for the Grameen Bank in that regard. So even though the interest rates were very high and there has been some criticism in that regard of the microcredit industry, um, they were still, you know, very empowering and making an impact. Yeah, yeah. And still we're left with this, uh, this tension between those who are working for what I would call the good and those who are consciously maybe, I don't know, does anybody, mm -hmm. are, some people are consciously evil. I guess there are some maybe, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Does anybody ever think <laughs> I'm going to be really evil now? <laughs> maybe some yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to delineating good and evil, I think we need to be very careful about both the, the physical reality of what happens in the brain. I mean, we do know, for example, that in certain cases, there are psychological uh, and psychiatric deficiencies, in fact, in the brain, which can lead to a lack of empathy, for example, and that those are there are certain traits, which mean yeah. some, there are even genetic traits, which can lead to people becoming, yeah. you know, more likely to have um, homicidal tendencies, for example. However, from that to the other side of it is where people, because of their environment and because of the way in which trust, I think trust is fundamental in so many ways in, in uh, socio-ecological systems, where if that trust gets eroded, then they, they make bad decisions. And I would put someone like President Putin in that category. I, I do not accept that Putin is inherently evil in the same way as, you know, you might consider uh, people like Hitler who are thought to have had like, you know, some really uh, severe uh, psychiatric issues of the lack of empathy and just, you know, what one could call evil in that regard. Um, 
Whereas in, and, and not just lack of empathy, but an intent also, and an ideology, which therefore got fueled into this, uh, you know, really pernicious force with Putin. It's not, I mean, he's, that's why he keeps using the term Nazis for others, because he wants to differentiate himself partly that he's not inherently out to just get out, get people for ideological reasons. And with him, the problem is that for his, his whole his upbringing and the, the milieu in which he grew up with the Soviet Union. If you look at his whole, um, you know, uh, early childhood in St. Petersburg and so on, uh, it led to a situation where he can't really trust anyone. And he has become paranoid as a result of that. Mm -hmm. And then that has led to these really deranged errant decisions, whether it is about NATO and this, you know, paranoia about NATO and so on. Uh, and and then I, I think if we take you know if we if we if we are careful with nuance in diagnosing these issues with people and individuals and the environment in which they grew up and how it was influenced, then we can have a very different way in which we resolve conflicts. So, for example, with the Crimean conflict, I've actually written about this. Uh, the you know the invasion of Crimea in 2014, and uh, one of my PhD students has worked on the Black Sea conflict areas. Uh, you know, clearly that decision to invade was, came out of this nationalist tendency. Nationalism comes out of a sense of, you know, lack of trust in the other. And so you try to focus on yourself as a nation or a tribe yeah. and so on, right? Yeah. And so it was around, well, there's a Russian majority in Crimea. We want to give them solidarity that their, you know, Russian uh, neighbor is going to come and help them and have sovereignty and so on, right? But then what happened is when he made that decision, there was a, a canal where water was uh, brought into Crimea during the Soviet period, and uh, uh, Ukraine once the Crimea was annexed, they built a dam on the canal, and so there was no water flowing in. Now that further accentuated his paranoia because now he's saying like they're not giving us water uh, and um, he actually took Russia took uh, Ukraine to the European Court of Human Rights around that issue that you're depriving us of water uh, and Ukraine said well you occupied our territory it's your business you you figure it out we have a right to build a dam to prevent you from getting water now that that was one contributing factor to further eroding trust I would argue that at that point, between 2014 and 2022, um, we had an opportunity to try and de-escalate the situation by not reinforcing the paranoia. Uh, and we didn't quite make sense of it by these small acts like this, this dam. I wouldn't say that the dam was the reason for the current invasion, but it was a threat multiplier, which led to this reinforcement of it. And and the problem is that no one wants to deal with these nuances. They just want to say, okay, this is, this is good and evil and that's it. You know, we just want to. And that's the, the challenge that we have to grapple with in, in, in reconciling that sense of natural order with social and political order. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate the nuanced view that you bring to, uh, to these very weighty matters in our world and on the planet. And I feel very privileged to have had this opportunity to speak with you. Thank you so much, David. It's an honor to speak to you too.
Once again, this podcast has provided me and you, my listeners, to spend time with a remarkable human being. I'm referring to Salim H. Ali, Ph.D., who is an environmental scientist wrestling with the biggest and most challenging questions of our time. He's a consultant and advisor to many of the movers and shakers who will influence our global destiny. In his most recent book, Earthly Order, How Natural Laws Define Human Life, he writes, and I quote, My own role on two United Nations science panels has motivated me to write this book to find that tough sweet spot between depth and breadth to galvanize informed decision-making, learning from humanity's successes and failures in understanding natural order while conducting our own economic, social, and political order can mitigate the global culture wars and cognitive conflicts that haunt our times. Close quote. Who is this man who has become such an important and influential thinker? My own experience of him is that he is not only one of the most learned, but also one of the most gentle and humble guests I've ever had on the show. Part of the reason for this, I suspect, is found in his cross-cultural origins. He was born in New Bedford, Massachusetts, but grew up in Lahore, Pakistan, until his college years, receiving his bachelor's degree in chemistry from Tufts University and his master's and Ph.D. degrees in environmental policy and planning at Yale and MIT, respectively. He also spent a number of years studying and teaching in Australia. As a consequence, he's multilingual and has a global perspective. He's unafraid to wrestle with big ideas, like the tension between the principles of chaos and order. He writes, quote, The tension between order and chaos has been a fundamental feature of natural change and has animated human interactions with our environment. As an environmental systems scientist and geographer, I recognize that order is itself a fundamentally contested concept in both natural and social science, close quote. While avoiding absolutism, he's willing to take a stand. He writes, quote, Our current polarization of social perceptions stems from an inability to reconcile natural order with economic and social order. The key challenge is our unwillingness to engage with order as a concept that by necessity exists in flux with chaos or anarchy. Both states have their own purpose and functionality in natural and social systems. Close quote. As to the purpose behind his writing, this fine paradigm-shifting book, he writes, Quote, my aim here is to test the limits of order as a concept of inherent value to us as custodians of nature as well as cultivators of sustainable human societies. How and why have human beings at once sought order in nature but are all too often tempted to indulge in chaos? What can we learn from natural order in systems while recognizing the limits of imposing or imagining structure where none might exist, close quote. 
This is a book guaranteed to broaden your perspectives as you consider the challenges confronting us all. While academically sound, it's written for a popular audience. I strongly recommend Earthly Order, How Natural Laws Define Human Life by Salim H. Ali. Hey, Dr. Dave. This is Dan Marks. I'm a personal trainer, both living and working in Manhattan, and I'm a new contributor to Shrink Wrap Radio. Since I moved here nine years ago, psychotherapists have comprised a large chunk of my client base, and I count that as lucky since I enjoy you all, and especially since it's sort of the family business with my dad being a 30-year veteran of the field and my sister being a newly minted professional, both of them in St. Louis. Fitness training obviously differs from psychotherapy, Dr. Dave, but I listen to, I witness, educate, and guide my clients as they pursue the sometimes difficult art of bettering their health through exercise. And in the trenches, story serves and saves each of us regularly. I first encountered Shrink Wrap Radio via a web search on Dr. James Hollis, who I'm a longtime fan of, and I was thrilled with the discovery. Wow, what an immensely fertile time this is for psychology. Listening to you and your guest, Dr. Dave, soon became a valuable and entertaining part of the out-of-the-room, off-the-couch practice that has decisively furthered my own therapy. I am really, really grateful for all the work, thought, and love that you and your guests have put in to provide this opportunity. Lastly, Dr. Dave, I confess to being a pseudo-new member. I was a monthly member about one and a half years ago, but my credit card company was hacked and the transaction disconnected. That happened, by the way, four times in about six months, and I just lost track of shrink wrap for a period of time there. I'm wondering if anyone else out there wants to get back in. Hey, Dr. Dave, thanks very much. I appreciate it, and I look forward to more. Thank you, personal trainer Dan Marks, for your support and endorsement. And, of course, thank you... To all you other monthly supporters, you have no idea how much it warms my heart as I scroll through the list of regular donors to see each one of you like old friends. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my warm and wonderful guest, environmental scientist Salim H. Ali, on how natural law defines human life. He's inspired us to trust in our resilience and creativity as a species to preserve and work collaboratively toward a desirable future. My guest next week will be renowned psychologist and psychoanalyst Jonathan Shedler, Ph.D., on the seven principles of psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you once again to be kind to yourself, others, and the earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.